Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the last week, week and a half, I've been in in five different airports. And there's um, two different kinds of passengers that fly. And you can observe the difference. You can tell the difference between the confirmed ticketed passenger and the standby passenger. You know, a confirmed ticketed passenger, they're the ones that are sitting down, they're reading the newspaper, they're talking to a friend or relative on a computer. Maybe they're even sleeping as they're waiting for their flight. They've got a ticket. Then there's the standby passenger. And you can tell a standby passenger because they're the ones pacing. They're the one up by the ticket counter hovering over the ticket counter. And the difference really between the two is one word, confidence. If you don't have confidence, you don't know if you're going to be on that flight. That's why they pace. What if you knew that within the next hour that you would be standing before a holy God who would render you a verdict for your eternity? What would you be doing? What would you be like? Would you be pacing, hovering, wondering? Would you be confident? Would you be wondering if he's going to say, welcome home? Or would he say, maybe you're thinking, depart from me, you who work iniquity. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk to you about this morning in this study, heaven bound and enjoying the ride, because though a ticketed passenger and a standby passenger may indeed end up at the same place, not everybody's enjoying that process. Last week, we were in Matthew chapter seven, and we discovered that the believer's personal eternal security can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. That the foundation that we build upon is not the foundation of our own good works um, or of our own profession, but it begins with a relationship of being born again, knowing him. And once we know him, we love him. And when we love him, we hear him. And when we hear him, we obey him. And so we saw that relationship comes first and relationship produces lifestyle. And a person like that is very secure. But there's a flip side, the insecure, the timid and the fearful who are um, like standby passengers. They're heaven bound, perhaps, but they're not enjoying the ride. With that in mind, let's read our verse, our text, verse 13 of first John, chapter five. Again, this will just be the anchor text. We're going to be looking at other verses in first John. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, that's our text, but would you allow me to read that to you in a different translation, one that you can't follow along with because you don't have it? It's the Wiest translation. Kenneth Wiest was a Greek scholar who took the original and expanded it according to its Greek words. Here's his translation. These things I write to you in order that you may know with an absolute knowledge that the life you are having 
is eternal life. One thing we, we understand about John, John lived in certainty. There was no ambiguity. There was no maybe. There was no I hope. There's a lot of I know. In fact, he uses the word no, K-N-O-W, 32 times in this short little epistle alone. See, he wants us to not be the standby passengers hovering and waiting and hoping, but the ones with the confirmed tickets, we know. And we want to talk about that today. In fact, you could take verse 13 and, and slice it right in two. And I've done that in your outline. Why should we be sure and how can we be sure? Why should we be sure and how can we? First of all, why should we? Notice that John says that you may know. Why is it that some people are insecure about their eternity, about their salvation? Well, there's a few different reasons. Reason number one, they're insecure because they're not saved. They should be insecure. That's a good feeling. In fact, it's a haunting feeling if you're not sure about where you're going. I remember... I had been saved probably two weeks and I was giving my testimony and there was somebody listening to what I was saying and he sort of butted in and said, well, how do you know you were saved? I said, that's easy. I was there when it happened. <laughs> but for some people, it never happened. They were there, but it never happened. And it is possible to have a conversion of sorts short of a true conversion. Now, let me explain that. Some people have a ceremonial conversion. They get wrapped up in a ceremony and a ritual and the regalia of doing certain things. And that ceremony or those rituals replace true faith, authentic repentance and belief. It's just the ceremony. Other people have a cultural conversion. What I mean by that is this person will agree with certain Christian values and participate in certain Christian activities. You know, that's the kind of person that says, well, going to church is good. I ought to do more of that. I have kids now. They ought to be in Sunday school and get some good influence. And it's really a cultural conversion rather than a true Christian conversion. Then some people have a mental or emotional conversion. They're pressured into it. It's the emotion of the moment. Or they get talked into it by a relative or a fiancé, perhaps. I'm not saying that the Christian faith is not reasonable and that you can't sit a person down and show them where they can make an intelligent and heartfelt commitment. But A.W. Tozer once said, if somebody can talk you into it, maybe somebody smarter could talk you out of it. It's something deeper than that. But some people are insecure because they were never saved. That would breed insecurity. Another reason why some people feel insecure about their salvation is they don't know it's possible to be sure. There's a group of Christians who think nobody can really know until you die. And I gave you that little story last week about a clergyman and the conversation I had with him. I want to tell you another story. It's not mine. It's something I read by a guy named Dr. Roy Zuck. You'll recognize the name if you've been in the commentary world. You know that he produced one of the greatest Christian commentaries of the last several years. Dr. Roy Zuck is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was witnessing to a young man in Amsterdam about Christ. 
And at the end of the conversation, the young man was very open. He said to the young guy, do you want to pray to receive Christ? And the young man said something very interesting to him. He said, well, I don't know if I'm one of the elect or not. And Roy said, well, when do you plan to find that out? The young man said, well, I won't know till I die if I'm one of the elect. And Roy said, that's a little too late to find out you were wrong, isn't it? That's what the young man said back to him. If I die and I find out that I'm not among the elect, I'll do my best to glorify God in hell. How desperate is that? How utterly despairing a statement. Talk about a standby passenger. What if you went to a doctor and the doctor said, well, I've examined you and you may have cancer. Then again, you may not. Well, doc, how will I know? Well, if you die of it, we'll know you had it. (laughs) That's not going to help you out very much, is it? Not very comforting. And to say that you can't know about your salvation till you die is to deny the sovereignty of God in salvation. Yet, some people feel that if you're sure that you're saved, you know you're going to heaven. That's arrogant for some reason. How prideful of you to say, arrogant of you to say, you know you're going to heaven. I do know I'm going to heaven because of what the Bible says. Some people feel not only is it arrogant, but you're opening the door to loose living. You know, if somehow you feel so secure in your salvation, it's going to cause you to lower your standards and get involved in things you shouldn't do. Listen to what Jesus said. John, the apostle, was there when Jesus said it. This is John chapter five, verse 24. Most assuredly, let those words seep in most Assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. Not may have, not could have, not we hope he has, not he'll find out if he has it when he dies, has it. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, there's a third reason why some people feel insecure about salvation. And frankly, it's because they don't understand the grace of God. They're Christians. But they've been living under the thumb of legalism so long, they just don't get grace. They're like the group in Acts chapter 15. Remember the Judaizers who said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's some Christians. The only thing they know about grace is, oh, yeah, that's a little prayer before a meal. You say grace. There was an old Indian chief. He was led to Christ, Native American. His family was wondering about the change in his life, and they asked this old guy to explain the change. How how is it that you came to this understanding? What happened to you? Tell us about why you are the way you are. And the old Indian chief took a little worm, put it on top of a pile of leaves on the ground, dried leaves, lit a match, to one of the leaves, it started burning, and before the entire bundle was consumed, worm and all, he reached down his hand and snatched the worm up and held it gently in his hand, and he said, me, the worm. 
That old guy understood God's grace. I am the way I am because God reached down, snatched me out of the flame, and he holds me gently in his hand. There was an old Puritan preacher in the 1700s called Thomas Manton who said, None walk so evenly with God as those who are assured of the love of God. But some people don't understand grace, God's grace and God's keeping power and grace. And so they're timid and fearful. Which really begs this question. Why is it so important for you to know where you're going? Why is it so important for you to know about your eternity, your salvation? Well, I'll answer it and then I'll expand it. If you know, it will show. If you don't know, it will show. The first thing it does when you are assured of your salvation is it produces it produces a sense of stability. Security produces stability. Insecurity produces instability. Notice the last part of verse 13. He says, I want you to know this, that you may or and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. It produces stability. Have you ever been somewhere? Maybe you're traveling to a place and you take a wrong turn. You get lost. You thought you were on the right path, but now you discover you're not. And depending on where you're at, you could panic. Uh, Years ago, Nathan was just a baby. And we decided, I decided, let's put everybody in the car and let's, let's go down and see White Sands. And let's go see Las Cruces. So we got in the car. And I'm driving down the road, and Nathan's just a baby, as I said, and I think I know where I'm going. I take the wrong turn. I end up in a little town called Carrizoso. Okay, now you're laughing because either you've been there. How many of you have been there? Okay, hands down. How many of you have never been to Carrizoso? I want to see your hands. I thought so. I thought so. It's a little wide spot in the road that has no doctor There's a doctor 100 miles from that town. Well, I mention that because in taking the wrong turn, my car broke down in that town. Nathan was throwing up in the back seat as a baby. I needed a doctor. There was no doctor. I started to panic. Well, that's how an insecure believer lives. I thought I was on the right path. Maybe I'm lost. In the book of Hebrews, the writer speaks about our hope. Listen to his words as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. That's stability. I was reading about General Stonewall Jackson, who before a battle said, my spiritual beliefs teach me to be as secure in the battle as I am in my own bed. That's assurance. If you don't have that assurance, you're a victim. You're a victim of circumstance because one day you're going to feel good. The other day you're not going to feel good. One day you're going to feel close to God. The next day you're not going to feel as close to God. You'll lack joy. You'll be filled with anxiety, instability. So it's important to know because assurance produces stability. Also, it's important to know. Second reason is because it makes you effective It makes you it it increases your effectiveness. You're more effective in your witness because you're sure about your own life. You want others to be sure. 
It increases your effectiveness in your prayer life. Look at the very next verse, verse 14, 1 John. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have asked, that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Jesus taught us to pray our father in heaven. Well, if you're not sure he's your father, you're not going to be sure that he's going to answer the rest of that prayer or any prayer. It'll make you ineffective. Look at it this way. If you saw a group of bikers sitting on the side of the road, leather jackets, would you have the freedom to walk up to one of them, slap one on the back, sit on his Harley, and then demand the keys? Not if you want to live long, you wouldn't. But what if, what if that guy was your brother? And he loved you and you loved him. You wouldn't think twice about doing that. So it increases your effectiveness. It produces stability. And, and now we come to the real heart of this message. And that is not, not why we should be sure, but how can we be sure? And I want you to zero in on that little phrase in verse 13. These things I have written to you. Now understand what he's talking about is the whole letter of 1 John. I've just written this letter to you. These things that I've written about, the reason that I've written them is that you might know that you have eternal life. So there's something in 1 John that he has written about that help us to know if we're saved. And indeed there are. And there's five questions. I'm going to take you back to chapter 2 to begin with. Five questions, a five-fold test to ask yourself these questions to know whether or not you are his. Question number one, are you obeying his word? Look at chapter two, verse three, and notice how John writes this. Now, by this, we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected or completed in him. By this, we know that we are in him. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty straightforward. If you want to know whether or not you're a Christian, ask whether or not you obey the commands of Scripture. Are you obeying his word? And that, by the way, is exactly how Jesus described his disciples when he sent the 12 out, and he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28, verse 30. Listen to this. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And here John says, if you do that, you've got assurance. Obedience produces assurance. The confidence that you know for sure. Somebody once said, a faith that has not changed your life has not saved your soul. So, are you obeying his word? Let me ask you this question in line with that. How do you feel when you come up against a commandment of God in his word? Any commandment. For you not to do something, for you to start doing something, for you to continue doing something, to avoid something. When it's a command, what do you do with that command? How do you feel about that when you read it? 
Do you automatically say, well, it's irrelevant. It was written long ago. It must not mean the same today as it did then. Uh, or somebody else I know should be reading this, not me. Do you deflect or do you apply and say, what do I need to do with this? There was a religious lawyer. I was reading her little statement. Uh, she called herself religious. She was a churchgoer, according to her admission. She was from Washington, D.C., and she said, and I quote, to be perfectly honest, some laws seem to apply to me and some I disregard. Some tenets of the church add up. Others are absurd and even insulting. I don't need the pope, the press or some lowly cop to tell me how to live my life. How compliant is this person to authority? Not very What's your attitude when you come up against a direct command in his word? So test number one, are you obeying his word? Test number two, are you believing his truth? Are you obeying his word? Second, are you believing his truth? And I mean specifically the truth about who Jesus Christ is. To be saved, you have to believe in the right Jesus. A lot of people say, I believe in Jesus. Well, describe him for me. Who is he? Add meaning to that word, Jesus. And look with me in chapter 2, down to verse 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So do you believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ? That he is the only begotten Son of God? That he is God the Son? That he is the Messiah, the Christos is the term here, the only Savior for the world. All of that, the Bible says, is true in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Or is Jesus to you a nice guy, a good example, a wonderful teacher? All the stuff they teach you in the Bible is literature class. It is, um, it's, it's amazing to me. Uh, it, I, I would say to the point of being laughable, except eternity is no laughing matter. But it's amazing to me how many new ideas and theories about Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, every Christmas and Easter, they're in the magazines or on the television about Jesus Christ. Uh, new ideas. Well, really, who Jesus was is. And I've sort of um, watched and written down. I've kept a little track record of these over the last few years. Some people say Jesus was a magician who practiced illusion and hypnosis. Others say he was simply an illiterate artisan. Others say a zealot. Others a guru. Some say he was a world traveler. Some religions call him an ascended master. I found a cult in Canada that says Jesus Christ was a human being created by aliens. That's a new one. And then what's become popular over the last few years, Jesus was the husband of Mary Magdalene through whom he wanted to procreate a lineage to rule the world. You say, well, Skip, that's, that's fringe, man. That's marginal. That's not what most people think. You're right. It's worse. 
It's worse because there was a there was a survey done of thousands, thousands of Protestant ministers. Over 3000 took part in this survey. And here's the results. A considerable number of them have rejected altogether the idea of a personal God. God, they said, was the ground of all being, the force of life, the principle of love. And a majority of the youngest group cannot be said to believe in the virgin birth or regard Jesus Christ as divine in the traditional way that most Protestants were brought up. That's frightening. That's frightening. Jesus asked two questions at Caesarea Philippi to his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Remember, they said, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, they gave a bunch of answers. The crucial question is still asked today. Who do you say that I am? Peter nailed it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that's a good test. Who do you say Jesus is? So are you obeying his word? Are you believing his truth? Third, are you expecting his return? Go to chapter 3. John continues his thinking. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Every true Christian has the blessed hope that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And we can't wait for him to come back. And you know why? Well, it says in verse 2, we shall be like him. I'm up for that. Somebody asked me the other day, what will we look like? Then, my answer, a lot better than we do now. We're going to be like him. Now, I'm sort of picturing, sometimes when I read the Bible, I picture here's John, and on the other side of the table is Paul, because their writings, in many cases, were so similar. And here John says, we know that when he is revealed, we're going to be like him. And then I can hear Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 30. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Folks, one of the ways to tell a real citizen of the kingdom of God is they can't wait to see their king. That whole prospect of Jesus is coming is exciting. They anticipate it. They love it. If you're not a true believer... If you thought Jesus Christ was coming back, you wouldn't be very excited. You'd say, he is? Oh, no. But a true citizen wants to see the king. Our citizenship is in heaven. See, the longer we live here as citizens of the kingdom of God, we get more homesick, don't we? Because that's our real home. First time I went to India, I was there for three weeks. The third week... At night, I started dreaming of American food because I'd been without it for a few weeks. You know, I love the curry and the rice, but I just it was so never ending. The third week I was dreaming of hamburgers. 
And if you know India, there are no hamburgers. You don't eat meat over there because, you know, it could be your great great grandpa or something. It's, I was I was homesick is my point. I got off the airplane. I felt like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And yet some folks think it's unhealthy to expect the Lord Jesus Christ to come home They'll, or, or to come quickly. They'll say, well, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. My counter to that is you're never really any earthly good until you're heavenly minded, because once you're heavenly minded, you can live with perspective. You won't get wrapped up in the cares of this world and you'll stay pure. Notice what he says here in verse three. Everyone who has this hope. That is, that Jesus Christ will be revealed, that he'll come, purifies himself just as he is pure. One of the most purifying ways to live is that he could come back at any moment. When they did the archaeological digs of the city of Pompeii, they surmised that the volcano, the molten ash struck instantaneously, very rapidly. The people could see it coming, but it was too late. People were found frozen in position, most of them running away from the flow, running upstairs or or down into basements or on higher ground. But they found an amazing discovery. They found one Roman sentinel standing by the gate of the city, watching the flow come toward him. And he still had his hands standing upright, attached to his weapon. He saw it coming, but he was a Roman soldier. He stood his ground. He kept his guard. And that's the poise, the position that we ought to have in believing the Lord could come back at any moment. I want to be ready and I want to be doing what the master wants me to do. And that's that's a good indication that you're his child. So are you obeying his word? Are you believing his truth? Are you expecting his return? A fourth test that we find in first John. Are you conforming to his standards? Are you conforming to his standards? Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Now, get ready, because this is the text of Scripture that makes some people feel very uncomfortable. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of of the devil. You see the little word sins? It's in the present and it's a continual idea. He who continually, habitually practices sin, that's the idea. Verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not continually, habitually practice sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually, habitually, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God... And the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, when you and I become Christians, a pattern is broken. The pattern of sin is broken and a new pattern is developed. You notice this. You you got new desires. That's what the ancients used to call holy affections. I, I can just speak personally. I remember... I was a brand new believer. I wanted to read my Bible to find out what it said every day. I never wanted to read the Bible before that. I never wanted to read a Bible at all. Now I'm reading it a lot. 
I never wanted to go to church before. Now I wanted to go a lot. Um, I never wanted to pray. Now I wanted to pray. I had a whole different set of appetites, holy affections. So are you conforming to his standards? Can it be true? Is it true in your life that the longer you become a Christian, your sin decreases and your righteousness increases? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you will be perfect. You will not be perfect until you're in glory, until you see him as he is. But there should be, as the general direction of your life, an increase in righteousness and a decrease in sin. doesn't mean there's not sin in your life. Your unredeemed flesh is still there. But here's the point. You know it and you struggle with it. You struggle with it. See, an unsaved person could care less about his or her habits, could care less about God's authority over their lives. They just go on. A saved person cares. A saved person struggles. And though imperfect and though will fall, the general direction is that sin decreases and righteousness increases. I think a a good key there is verse four. Look at the word lawlessness twice mentioned. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. The Greek word is anomia without the law, literally anomia. And it it refers to a person who's living as if there were no law, could care less about what God thinks or any higher standard. A true believer, though imperfect, though will fail, though will fall, has a desire to be more conformed to his standards and live a holier life. You want to be happy? Be holy. C.S. Lewis wrote... How little do people know who think that holiness is dull? When someone meets the real thing, that is real holiness, it's irresistible. He continues, if even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted before the year's end? Irresistible. The fifth and final test is, are you loving his children? Are you loving his children? That's picked up at the end of verse 10 that we just read. Now read just a couple verses down. It's another test. For verse 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know... That we have passed from death to life. How do we know that? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Do you care about other Christians? That's a good question to ask when you feel like, I don't know if I'm really his child or not. Ask yourself, do you love God's children? Do you care about them when you see a need? Does your heart go out and want to meet that need? Or do you say, I don't really care about them, those people? Their needs, that would be the mark of an unsaved person, focusing on themselves. You could even broaden that out and ask, what about enjoying fellowship in general? When you think of meeting with other Christians, what does that feel like? You think, boy, I can't wait to get together with a group of believers and get the 
word of God and sing together and pray together and discuss spiritual things together? Or do you say, oh, maybe once every eight months. I'm a regular at church. Every eight months I'm, I'm there. Do you love the fellowship of believers? Love is the hallmark. We all know that. Dwight L. Moody said, a doctor can be a great doctor without loving his patients. A lawyer could be a great lawyer without loving his clients. A geologist could be a good geologist without loving science. But nobody can be a good Christian without love. Are you loving his children? So, all in all, here's the question. Are you a confirmed ticketed passenger? Or are you on standby? Are you pacing back and forth? Paul, in 2 Corinthians 13.5, said, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And if you doubt, and if you struggle with assurance, then go back over this five-fold test and ask yourself these things. If you love God's people, if you're looking for the return of Christ, if you're believing the things that are true and right about Jesus Christ, and as a pattern of your life, you're wanting to please and obey Him, then breathe a sigh of relief. Let that soothe you and calm your heart. And I closed my Bible too soon because I think we ought to close with something we did not read. And I want you to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, and a couple verses. By this we know that we are of the truth. And that is all the things that I just mentioned, especially loving God's children. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, that's your conscience, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. He's writing so that you have confidence toward God about your eternity. But there are some people, because of their conscience, their heart, it's weak and their joy is robbed. They have a tender, fearful conscience. You know some like that. If your conscience condemns you, know that God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. Remember when Peter denied Jesus Christ? Do you think he felt pretty low at the time? Do you think he felt like, I've committed the unpardonable sin, I denied Jesus Christ? Remember what Jesus came to him and said after he rose from the dead in Galilee? Three times he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? Remember what Peter said the third time? He appealed to his knowledge. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Sort of the thought here. God's greater than your conscience. He knows all things. He was there when it happened. He was there when you were converted. He was there when you made all of those right steps, and even though you have fallen, even though your conscience is hurting and fearful, he knows all things. But he wants you to know for sure. You should know. You can know. And honestly, honestly, I'll be very honest. If you're not saved today, I pray you'll be miserable. <laughs> honestly, 
I pray that your conscience would be so bothersome to you that you don't get any sleep until you surrender to Christ. I, I do. And so that's a horrible. No, it's a loving thing. I want you in heaven. I want you in heaven. But I also pray that those of you who know Christ will be soothed and calmed and comforted and assured as you abide in him. You have nothing to fear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have we've read a lot of verses in in this little epistle of first John. And even though we could have talked for weeks just on these items, we've condensed it into just a couple of weeks. Lord, the long and short of it is you have provided salvation. In Christ alone, through faith alone. And if we come that way and we confess and we're touched and and it's a true conversion, then there's going to be evidence of that in a number of different areas, as we have seen today. And I pray that in looking at these areas, we would assure our own hearts before you. Lord, I pray that in knowing that, there would be a stability, a confidence, and an effectiveness in our lives. With you in prayer and before this world. Thank you, Lord, for this flock that flocks together every week to hear your word and to worship and to do service and to show love to their brother and sister and to await your return. Multiply your blessings and care for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.